got a Bible with you, open up to Revelation chapter 3. As you're turning there, I need you to give me an honest confession this morning. How many of you guys have already decorated for Christmas? Come on. Already decorated for Christmas. That's about half of you. Look at you. You're already going for it. How many of you guys have already watched a Christmas movie? Come on. You've already seen a Christmas. My goodness. Look at you guys. You guys are all about the incarnation, aren't you? All about the incarnation. So, hey, we're in a series on the book of Revelation. We're looking at the seven churches. This morning is church number five, and we're calling it the dead church. The dead church, Revelation chapter three, verses one through six, the apostle Paul writing, or the Apostle John, excuse me, I'm already uh, moving on to another epistle here, but the Apostle John is writing, he's recording uh, the words of Jesus, and here's what we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and have, uh, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will not blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches." Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that Christ is alive. And thank you that we get to come and sing songs to our great King. And thank you for reminding us through these seven letters to these seven churches of areas that we need to do some inventory in our own hearts and in our own church to see what lessons we could learn today that would help us change and be conformed more into the image of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Open our ears today. Help us to hear and apply your truth by the power of your spirit in our lives, that this would be an incredible week of thanksgiving and of praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, almost a decade ago, on August the 12th, 2011, Dale Ostrander almost died. In fact, after this 12-year-old boy had been swept off the coast in Washington State by a riptide, and after spending about 15 or more minutes totally submersed in the cold water, he was thought to be dead. The rescuers who finally pulled him out of the 56-degree water said that he was lifeless with no pulse, and his face was pale. Frantically dragging him ashore, the team began their resuscitation efforts. Dr. Morocco, an emergency room physician, said that the only way that Dale, this 12-year-old boy, made it through was because of the relentless efforts of those first responders who immediately started their resuscitation efforts, even though this boy had no pulse and appeared to be dead. This is a perfect golden hour case said Dr. Morocco, referring to that brief window in medicine in which lives can be saved with proper intervention. In fact, back in 1975, an 18-year-old was underwater for 38 minutes after driving off the road into an ice-covered pond in Michigan. Paramedics initially thought this person was dead, but the man woke up 13 hours later in the hospital. This ER physician, Dr. Morocco, says that medical literature cites at least one case in which a person survived after being submerged for up to one hour. How can you be dead but still be alive? Or on a slightly different note, in the case of the church of Sardis, Jesus says here in this text, Revelation 3, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron. 
How can you be dead and be alive? An oxymoron is two things that seem to contradict each other, like black light or jumbo shrimp (laughs) or an amicable divorce or freezer burn. There's no such thing as an original copy. Or how about boneless ribs? (laughs) Ever been on a working vacation? These are all uh, oxymorons, which they just don't make sense when you really sit down and think about it. But how about a dead church? That has to be the ultimate oxymoron, the greatest of all contradictions. How can you have a dead church and how can it still somehow be alive? And Jesus says that this church, the church of Sardis, in effect, was like a church of the living dead. Tragically, there are many churches in America today just like this. And these churches have been on life support. Uh, somehow the, the economy has kept them afloat or the diehard traditions of the church have kept them going for far too long. And if the plug were pulled today on some of these churches, they would just fall over dead. They have the appearance of life, but in actuality, they are dead. In his book entitled The Final Call, Steve Lawson writes this about dead churches, quote, their sanctuary is a morgue with a steeple. They are congregations of corpses. They have undertakers for ushers, embalmers for elders, and morticians for ministers. Their pastor graduated from the cemetery. (laughs) The choir director is the local coroner. They sing embalmed in Gilead. You might say that their worship is a bit stiff. At the rapture, they will be the first churches taken because the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. They drive to church in one long line with their headlights on. Whenever someone joins their membership, the church office immediately notifies the next of kin. The church van is a black hearse. Their church sign is a tombstone. A lot of humor in Dr. Lawson's writing there, but it's a reality. There's a lot of churches that are just playing church, propped up, again, by economy, tradition, and by people who have empty hearts, who have not known the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've attended a church like that at some point in your life where the preaching was dead, the worship was lifeless, the fellowship was decaying. They lost their vital signs years ago. And even worse, maybe your spiritual life is like that right now, to where you would say your Bible reading is essentially dead. Your prayer life is dead. Your service to the Lord, dead. You once lived on the cutting edge, but now you've gone over the edge. Your devotion to Christ is dead, dormant, dull, drowsy, distant disinterested, deplorable, dilapidated, drowning, disengaged, droopy, and disgusting. It's a lot of D's there, right? But at points in our Christian life, if you want to be honest this morning, you've been through a season of dryness, and that is exactly what this church of Sardis is, and it might be going on in your life too. But this morning, I've got great news for you, and that is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what kind of struggle that you're facing, we serve a risen Savior. You see, Jesus overcame death, and he wasn't revived from a stupor. He was resurrected from the grave, and he wasn't just resuscitated from some unconscious state. He was risen from the dead. Jesus is now not dead, but he is very much alive. And if you are in Christ this morning, you too are alive in him. And because he lives, he can jolt your life back into action. And no matter how long you've been in the cold water, no matter how long you've been lost in your sin, no matter how long you've, you've, you've been gone, you can come back. No matter how far you've wandered, you can come home. You may be here this morning and you have no pulse and you have no heartbeat and you have no breath, but Christ says, wake up. He says, breathe. 
Arise, walk, all by the grace of God. And this is the message for this church of Sardis, and this may be the message for your heart this morning. And so as we look at the church of Sardis, we're going to examine these five headings that we've been following throughout this uh, series on the seven churches of Revelation. The first heading is the setting or the speaker. And I've already filled in this blank for you as we talk about the city. We're talking here about the city of Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write. And so we understand that Sardis is one of those uh, cities there in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. It, it had been one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was the capital of the fabulously wealthy Lydian kingdom. Much of Sardis's wealth came from gold taken from a nearby river, and archaeologists have even found hundreds of crucibles used for refining gold in the ruins of this city. The kingdom's most famous king was Croesus, and there was even a saying in the ancient world, to be as rich as Croesus was to be rich indeed. Gold and silver coins were apparently first minted in Sardis. Sardis was known also for its manufacturing of woolen garments, which was their biggest industry. And like Thyatira, they were on the cutting edge of dyeing these woolen garments and selling them for a reasonable profit. And for those of you who like ancient literature and good stories, you would appreciate the fact that it said that Aesop, the famous writer of fables, was thought to have been from Sardis. The city was located about 30 miles south of Thyatira in the fertile valley of the Hermes River. Sardis was located on an almost inaccessible plateau. The Acropolis of Sardis was some 1,500 feet above the valley floor, and this impressive setting nestled at the top of this natural high-rise made the city easy to defend. In fact, Sardis was thought to have been an impenetrable fortress against any military assault. This hill upon which Sardis was built had a smooth, nearly perpendicular rock walls on three sides where the city was up on the top. And even then, only from the south could the city be approached along a long and arduous path. Its seemingly indestructible location caused the citizens of Sardis to become overconfident in their natural defenses. And then in 549 BC, Sardis was put to the test when Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persians, captured the city by scaling a secret path up the steep cliff below. Dr. Robert Thomas, who was a professor of mine at the Master's Seminary, who since have, has gone to be with the Lord, wrote a two-volume commentary set on Revelation where he tells the account of Sardis's fall. Here's what he writes, quote, Croesus, the king of Lydia, felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis and foresaw an easy victory over the Persians who cornered among the perpendicular rocks in the lower city as easy prey for the assembling Lydian army to crush. After retiring one evening, he awakened to discover that the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by scaling one by one the steep walls. So secure did the Sardians feel that they left this means of access completely unguarded, permitted the climbers to ascend unobserved. It is said that even a child could have defended the city from this kind of attack, but not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch that side, which was believed to be inaccessible. Now, I'll share that story with you because what happened to the city eventually happened to the church. You see, this church felt like there's no way it could ever be tackled by outsiders. They felt like they sat on a high foundation on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they got a little snobby, and they got a little proud, and they got a little self-sufficient. They thought they were so invincible, they took their watchmen off of the walls, and they allowed complacency to creep in. And before they knew it, they had been overcome with walking zombies, dead men leading a dead church, Sardis, the church of the living dead. 
Let's talk a little bit about the church. You see it filled in for you already there. This church was not mentioned anywhere else but here in Scripture. And like the other churches of Asia Minor, this church, Sardis, was likely founded by the Ephesian church. And the most prominent person from the church of Sardis was a guy by the name of Melito, who was an apologist who served as a pastor at some point in Sardis in the late 2nd century. He also wrote the earliest known commentary on various passages of this book of Revelation. Interestingly enough, this letter addressed to the church of Sardis doesn't mention anything about the church facing any persecution. Neither does this letter mention anything about false doctrine, false teachers, or corrupt living. Yet some combination of those things certainly existed in this church if it was indeed a dead church. Maybe one thought is that Satan doesn't have his work cut out for him when he's already facing a dead church. Why would Satan bother to persecute a dead church? It's already dead like Satan himself, full of emptiness and hollowed out with its, with its walls. And, and it's as if, as, as if there were maggots that were eating away at its decaying flesh. This is truly a horrible church to be a part of. And so as we've read with the other churches, Christ now comes in the scene here in verse one, and there's characteristics of Christ that are going to confront what we see going on in this church. So that next blank is the characteristic of Christ emphasized there in verse one. It goes on to say the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so we're reading here that as Jesus addresses this church, he claims to have the seven spirits of God. I've told you before that seven often in the Bible is the number that's used to represent wholeness or completeness or perfection. And this does not mean that there's seven, literally seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. One thought is this might be a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where we see a sevenfold description of the Spirit of the Lord as the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and also having the fear of the Lord. And so maybe that's a reference to, again, this Holy Spirit. I believe that this is only, um, that, that only the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit can revive a dead church. And when the Spirit comes, he's full of power. And only a, a Spirit-energized revival can inflame the hearts of a dead church. Only a Spirit-energized revival can energize worship and convictive sin and grant repentance and lift heavy burdens and change lives and empower ministry. And we've got to understand this morning, it's got to be the Spirit of God. If you're feeling kind of dead this morning, you need to be begging this Spirit, this seven, uh, where it says here again, uh, the, the seven spirits of God, a reference to the Holy Spirit, to help wake you up, right? We, we've got to be reminded this morning that even the prophet Zechariah said, in Zechariah 4, verse 6, he said, this is the word of the Lord to, the, to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And likewise, Jesus holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. According to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, these seven stars are the pastors or the elders, the spiritual leaders of the church. And I believe that Jesus will send true revival to a church primarily based on the spirit-filled pastors who minister God's word and not their own. God works through the spirit-filled preaching of the word of God. And it is the spirit of God who applies the word of God into our hearts. And this is why Jesus is holding both the seven spirits and the seven stars together. Because the key to reviving new life in a dead church lies within the spirit's ministry through the lives of its pastor and its spiritual leaders. And revival so often starts at the top and spreads downward. Now, I'm not saying it can't stop at the bottom, all right? If you're on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, come and give me some, all right? So, I, but I am saying that throughout the Bible, when the men of God 
are preaching the word of God, then that church and the response is typically a work of God that happens, whether that's an Old Testament or a New Testament church alike. Pastors must, must catch on fire if they want people to catch on fire. Elders must catch on fire if they want the flock to catch on fire. Small group leaders must catch on fire if they want their small groups to catch on fire. Equipping our teachers of all ages must catch on fire if they want their students to catch on fire. The youth director must catch on fire if he wants the students in his youth ministry to catch on fire. Parents must catch on fire if you want your children to catch fire. A church has to set on fire to, to be set on fire in order to catch a community on fire. You follow what I'm saying? Each one of us needs the fire of God in our hearts and in our lives so that we might have an influence on those that are around us. And oh, how we need people in this church to pray for our pastors and to pray for our elders and to pray for our deacons and to catch fire. Someone asked Charles Haddon Spurgeon one time, how did he become such a passionate preacher and get so many people's attention with his well-known sermons? And his reply, you've probably heard this before, but his rep reply is priceless. He said this, quote, I set myself on fire and people come around to watch me burn. Well, I don't know about you this morning, but I'm ready to douse myself in gasoline. I'm ready to soak in some kerosene. And if I do, you better watch out because I'm going to spray napalm all over you. All right? <laughs> I'm serious. It's time for us to catch on fire. I don't want to be a dead church, right? We want to be a church on fire. And it is Christ who holds us in his hands and he holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars of the seven churches. And it is Christ who holds Placerita Bible Church in his hand. He is in control. He calls the shots. And he is our sovereign head. And what an encouragement this must have been to the church of Sardis, who those who were believers at the church, I'm going to explain that here in a minute, some believers, many who were dead, but for those who were believers, it must have been encouraging to be reminded that Jesus Christ was still at that time holding them in his hands. We need to be a church that would be reminded of this, this truth must come from the word of God into our hearts. In fact, it's like Jeremiah who said in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak of his name anymore, there is in my heart, it was like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. May God give us that kind of fire for him that comes from Christ through his word into our hearts that we couldn't contain what it is that God wants to do. And so our second heading this morning, that's a little bit about the setting, the speaker. Now let's look at the sin and the suffering where he says here, your next blank says, you are dead. And so still there in verse one, we read about Jesus, the eyes of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And then notice what he says at the end of verse one, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead with each of the other four churches that we've looked at already, Jesus started by commending them for some of the things that they had done, which are good, but not so with the church of Sardis. Here, Jesus has an urgency about him to get right down to the main point. And the problem with this church, as we have already mentioned, is, is that it is a dead church. Though its outward appearance may have fooled some, the Sardis church could not fool the omniscient gaze of Jesus Christ. He knows their deeds, and he knows their outer appearance had some life, but their inner soul was dead. It's like going to a museum. You, you see the wax figures and the stuffed animals. On the outside, they look real, but on the inside, you know that they're dead. And Jesus hates dead religion. He reserved his choicest words for the Pharisees who prided themselves in their pious external works, but on the inside, they were as dead as a doornail. In fact, that's what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. And so what does Jesus mean when he addresses this church of Sardis and says, but you are dead? Well, I don't believe that he means literally that all, every single member of the church was spiritually lost, but some were. The Bible says that those who are without Christ are dead in their trespasses and dead in their sins. And I think that what Jesus is getting at is that in this church of Sardis is that there is a spiritual vitality of the members that because they were being drummed down by the dead people who were in the church, their spiritual vitality began to lean towards non-existence. They, they were suffering from kingdom dry rot. They had eroded into a spiritual desert. They were just going through the meaningless motions of coming to the service attending the service, and then going home from the service. They had been lulled into a deep sleep by the monotony of their spiritual apathy. And apparently, they had some type of successful past because Jesus said you had a reputation of being alive. So they had some kind of reputation, but that was just the problem. They, they lived in the past, not in the present. In the present, they were an empty, lifeless church. They had a superficial estimate of themselves. They, could, uh, they, they were just coasting. They were looking back at maybe the glory days of times in their life. And no doubt, they prided themselves in their illustrious past. But now they've run out of gas. And their spiritual engines were dead. It was Dr. Vance Havner who once said that the spiritual ministries in the world today oftentimes go through four stages. First, there is a man. And he talks about how this man catches on fire in his prayer life through confession and through reading the word, and he begins to spread a revival. So it goes from being a man to being a movement. And there's a movement of the Spirit of God working through that man and those who are close to them. And then all of a sudden, it becomes like a machine. To where now this movement begins to become a little bit too mechanical, a little bit too planned and rehearsed, and then it turns into a monument. So it starts with a man, all of a sudden there, there becomes a movement, then it becomes too machine-like, and then it stops and dies, and all that's left is a monument. And some would say the church of Sardis was like that. It was at the monument stage. What does a dead church look like? Well, dead churches have dead preaching, dead worship, and dead ministry. First of all, there is dead preaching. Steve Lawson, again in that book, writes this about a dead church, quote, in the pulpit, a mild-mannered man speaks to a mild-mannered people, encouraging them to be more mild-mannered. His messages are filled with poems book reviews and personal opinions, social commentary, and human interest stories. He has an eloquence, Lawson writes, but no unction. He has the proper dictation, but no dynamic. He is like an old heater that is broken. The blower is still working, but the heat is gone. Close quote. That's what dead churches are. They have dead preaching. Dead churches also have dead worship. It's like walking into a museum or into a library. Shh, shh, don't get too excited. Don't sing too loud, right? There, there's no celebration. There's no emotion. They worship as if Jesus were still dead and in the grave. They began worship at 11 o'clock sharp and they end at 12 dull. <laughs> Their congregation are like singing sound, their congregational singing sounds like two cows looking for each other in the midst of a hurricane. It's so cold in that place, you could ice skate down the aisle. That's why we're not letting it happen here, all right? Get your hands up, people, when we're singing. Come on, come on up here. We got room for you on the front row. All right, third, dead churches have dead ministry. There are no Bible studies there are no small groups, there's no evangelism, no missions, no discipleship, no counseling. Most of their ministries include things like, like uh, aerobic classes, cooking seminars, and my personal favorite, bingo class. <laughs> right? 
You've seen it happen across town, right? Churches start to become these civic center community cultures instead of a focus on Christ. Oliver Cromwell, who you might remember, was the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England in the 1500s, was faced with a shortage of precious metal for coins. So he sent his troops out to find some. When they returned, they reported that the only precious metal left in England was found in the statues of the saints standing in the corners of the churches. So Cromwell said, quote, well, melt down the saints and put them into circulation, close quote. And that's the problem with dead churches, right? The saints are no longer in circulation, and we need to be melted down, and we need to be molded into a currency that can be spent for the master. That's what God's called us to be involved in the spiritual vitality of our church. And so not only does Jesus tell this church that they are dead, but he also, your next blank says that your works are incomplete. Your works are incomplete. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains, verse 2, and is about to die. I have found your works complete, and I have not found, excuse me, I have not found your works complete in the, sound, in, the, in the sight of my God. So their works were incomplete. These people were doing some works, but apparently not God's works, at least not to completion. God's works are to never be left undone. Though sufficient to give Sardis a reputation before men, these deeds were insufficient and unacceptable in God's sight. These deeds that they were doing were pointless. The lifeless motion of spiritual zombies walking around. They, they had been weighed on the scales of the righteous judge and been found wanting. So they're lacking. And it doesn't have to be that way in the life of a believer. I mean, we understand Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so the, the, the God who saves us is calling us to do works and to complete those works, not just to left them half undone. And so we could ask ourselves the question this morning, are you dead this morning or are you working? Are you working in Christ's strength for his glory? Is, is he working through you today? John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that remains in me and I in him shall bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding? Are you alive? Are you tapped into the vine? And is his grace flowing through you? Our third heading this morning is, well, what's the solution to what we're reading about here with this dead church? What's the solution to this? We see in verses 2 and verse 3 that Christ gives us the solution. And the solution is really listed out here as five steps toward a spiritual revival. Here's the first step. Your first blank there is wake up. Verse 2, again, the solution for this dead church. The first thing Jesus says to them, verse 2, the very first part says, wake up. Jesus attempts to awaken this church from its slumber. So he says, wake up. When we are spiritually dead, we sometimes need a slap in the face to bring us to an attention. To attention, we need a splash of cold water, a sniff of ammonia, a fire alarm sounding in the night. And Jesus is in a sense saying, come out of your spiritual hibernation, come out of your shell, come out of your cocoon, point the flower buds of your life toward the sun and open up and allow Christ to shine on you. Ephesians 5, 14, Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul writing says this, awaken, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And so the first step to be waking up from our dead is just to simply admit that something is wrong. I mean, that's what we got to get to the point instead of like, I'm good. You know, do you need prayer? No, I'm fine, pastor. Are you coming to church? Well, no, I'm not going to make it this weekend, but I'm good. Are you coming to small? I'm fine. Now, the first thing that we need is someone saying, you know what? It's not going well. My heart is not on fire for God. I, I'm going through a difficult time. We first need to admit that we need spiritual awakening. There needs to be a new day in your soul, a fresh start in your life. You know, it's kind of like the alcoholic, right? They first got to confess, I'm an alcoholic. That's what they say at AA, right? I'm not saying I'm suggesting that, but you understand the concept. You have to recognize 
so that you can be fixed. And we need to recognize, you know, I need God's help. I'm asking you today, God, wake up my soul. Stir my heart this morning. The second step to spiritual revival, number two, strengthen what remains. Wake up, and then the next part of verse two, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. In a sense, Jesus is saying, forge ahead. It's not enough to wake up, but you have to get moving. You have to put your feet on the floor, and you have to get dressed and get out and get a move on it in your day. Jesus is saying, get back into the word. Get back into prayer. Get back into Christian fellowship and service. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We got to throw off the covers, right? Get out of bed. Maybe you need to recommit to spend time with the Lord each day. A a new Bible study, a, a consistent prayer life, family devotions. Maybe you need to get back to attending church regularly. Whatever it takes, that girl's got it. She's on it. She's getting back. She's like, listen up to what he's saying. No, you you guys are good, man. You guys are good. Whatever you're doing. But we're saying that we got to strengthen what remains. There may be just a little flicker of life. And God's telling you this morning, hey, wake up and continue to strengthen what remains. It's not all gone. You're not beyond redemption and you're not beyond revival, but God's calling us to wake up. He's calling us to strengthen what remains. Number three, remember the gospel. Remember, he says, verse three, then what you have received and heard. I believe he's talking about the gospel there. I don't know what else he would be talking about other than the preaching of the word, the truth of redemption and salvation. Jesus is saying, look back. Remember what you've seen and what you've heard. Certainly, this is a reference to the gospel of grace. Remember when God saved you. Remember when he freed you from your sin. Remember when you first fell in love with Jesus. We talked about this with the church of Ephesus, that you've got to remember from where you've come. That's what God's got to do in your heart and life when you remember that he saved you from that. In fact, after giving a really long and nasty list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to the church of Corinth, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And we got to remember sometimes like, I used to be like that. That's why I tell people today, don't say I am an alcoholic. You know, I I mentioned that a minute ago. So don't say I am a homosexual. I am a drug addict. You can say, hey, I've struggled with these various sins, but I am a child of God. I've been purchased by his blood. I'm being revived by his spirit. I am a new creature. No temptation has seized me except what is common to man, and God is faithful, but he will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I can bear. But when I'm tempted, he will provide a way of escape. You can come out, and Jesus is working in you to change you, but we've got to keep thinking and remembering where we've been. The sin of this world tastes like gravel in your mouth. Spit it out and come to Christ and taste and see that he is good. And keep reflecting on those truths in your life. The fourth step to revival is this. Number four, keep the faith. There in verse three, you remember what you've heard. And then it says, keep it. We'll just do that one, those two words, right? Just keep it. Remember where you've come from and then keep the faith. Keep it. Walk in obedience. Hold on. Keep at it. This is an earnest appeal to obey God's word. In other words, it's not good enough just to remember what God did by saving you. That's a wonderful start. By all means, return there every moment of every day. But he does say, now I want you to put it into practice by keeping it, by walking in it. This is an earnest appeal to obey God's word. Orthodox theology without obedient lives does not glorify God. God wants orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is good doctrine of salvation. I'm saved by grace alone. Orthopraxy is, and I'm being sanctified, and I'm walking in obedience, and I'm keeping God's word, and I'm obeying him every day because what he's done in my heart has transformed me to where now I can walk with him. So he's saying here, keep God's commandments, 
in every area of your lives. Disobedience and spiritual dryness are like twin sisters. Where you see one, you are sure to see the other. Selective obedience is no obedience. Christ is calling us to sell out your life, saturate your mind, surrender your time and your energy for serving the Lord. He wants all of you this morning. If he's going to save you, he wants you to keep on keeping on with him. A husband and a wife were discussing the possibility of taking a trip to the Holy Land. Wouldn't it be fantastic to go to the Holy Land, he said, and stand and shout the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai? It would be better, his wife said pointedly, if we stayed at home and kept them. Ooh, he just got burned. (laughs) It's not enough just to say it. We got to do it, right? We want to live it out. And that's why Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 talks about, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you've been called to this incredible, beautiful salvation of being alive in Christ, he says that our conduct has to match our calling with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is your conduct matching your calling. He's called us to keep his word. And then the last step to the list of revival is to repent of your apathy. Again, in verse 3, remember, receive what you've heard, keep it, and repent. Jesus is saying with this word repent, he's saying turn around, let go of your old life, and live a new one. Repentance is 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 a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of behavior, and a change of motive. We've got to understand that saying I'm sorry doesn't go far enough. It's, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me for my sin and God help me to change my habits, renew the spirit of my mind. It's not good enough just to to be sorry for what happened. You don't just need worldly sorrow in your life. Worldly sorrow isn't going to cut it. You need godly sorrow in your life to turn your world upside down again. Oh, how we need to learn about godly sorrow from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. So if you're just sorry you got caught or you're sorry that you made a mistake, that, that's just one step in the right direction. But that's not repentance. Repentance is, hey, I'm sorry for what happened, and I am sorry I got caught, but you know what? I'm, I'm kind of glad that God opened up my heart and opened up my mind. I was talking with a person recently who was stuck in sin, habitual sin for years, and then this person got caught in their sin, and I asked this young man, I said, hey, what, what did you think when you got caught? And he told me, I was so relieved. I was just so thankful. I was so stuck for so long. And all of a sudden, after getting caught, it was like, I knew I could be set free. I knew it was out in the open. I was thankful. He wasn't like sorry and wanted to continue in it. He was sorry, and that changed everything in his life. And we're talking here about turning away from our sin, doing a 180, walking in the strength and in the grace of our God. And repentance means to to let go of your sins. And by the way, that's a choice that each one of you has to make every day. God grants you the ability, but you still have responsibility. So repentance initially at salvation is a gift, sovereign grace of God. But ongoing repentance on a daily basis is you saying, hey, I need to repent of that. I need to turn away from that. There's a story of a little boy who got his hand stuck inside of a mother's, his, one of his mother's expensive vases. She tried everything she could do to get that hand out of the vase, soap suds, shampoo, cooking oil, nothing seemed to be working. And when she was about to smash it with a hammer, the little boy looked up and said to his mom, would it help if I let go of these pennies that I'm holding in my fist? <laughs> you got to let it go to get your hand out. And some of us are still hanging on to that pet sin, to that some kind of comfort 
and we can't get out. You have to let it go so that you can pull your hand out. I'm here to tell you this morning, God can do that in your life. Doesn't matter what it is or how long you've been stuck. I don't know what your struggle is this morning. It could be a dream, a fantasy, an image, a perfect family, an income, a hobby, a spouse, a car, a house, your tendency to get mad or even and to justify your behavior. And that's the way, what way that you are. No, you got to just let it all go. Whoever you are, whatever you do, just let it go. Just turn from it, turn to Christ. He will renew you and give you new life. And this is what Christ is calling this dead church of Sardis to do. It's what he's calling us to do. And oh, by the way, your next point there says, we looked at five steps to revival. Well, there's only one reason given here why we need to obey. You know what it is? Number one, and there's only one, it's the judgment of God. It's basically turn or burn. It's what we're saying here. You get, it's not like you have other viable choices to kind of find some type of middle ground here. In verse 3 at the end, he says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The picture of Jesus coming like a thief always carries the idea of imminent judgment. The threat here is not necessarily of the second coming when he comes to punish those who have rejected him and to save his own. This is rather the Lord threatening to come and destroy the church of Sardis if there is no repentance and if there is no revival. Jesus is saying, look out as with Christ's threats to all the churches, he threatens to remove their lampstand or to throw them onto a bed of sickness or He will reap retribution on those who reject his letter. Why would Jesus threaten to deal so harshly with this church? Because nothing holds back the spreading of the gospel like a dead church. Nothing tarnishes the message of the life change that Christ brings like a dead church. And this spiritual deadness is like a malignant cancer that spreads through the whole body. And he said, I'm going to cut you off. If you don't repent of your sin, this is what Jesus says about all believers in John 15, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. A dry, dead church bears no fruit. And that church will do more harm to the cause of Christ than almost anything else. It is a sin to bore people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a sin to water down biblical morality in the name of culture or in the name of grace. God's called us to be a church that's alive. And a dead church is impotent, it's ineffective, and it's inactive. And just as a dead branch is cut and thrown into the fire, so a dead church will be uprooted and thrown into the fires of God's judgment. As Christians, we should obey out of our love for God and out of our fear of God. And there is a certain respect of his holiness that we understand we have an option on the table before the church of Sardis to either repent or to be judged. The fourth heading, number four here in verse four, he then talks about some unsoiled, that's your next blank, some unsoiled garments. Look at verse four. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. That's why I told you earlier the whole church wasn't dead because there's at least a few in the congregation who had not yet soiled their garments. As in each church, there are still some living for Christ. There are in Sardis, but a few. These faithful Christians had not soiled their garments. And in the midst of this dead church filled with unregenerate people, a few true Christians were scattered like flowers in a desert. There were not enough of them, however, For Christ to change his overall attitude toward this local assembly, nevertheless, Christ had not forgotten those who remained faithful to him. The fact that God preserves a faithful remnant 
is a common theme in Scripture. You may remember in times of old, in the Old Testament, when Jezebel, that we talked about a few weeks ago, and her Baal worshipers seemed to dominate the scene in Israel. Even Elijah, after he defeated the 450 prophets of Baal, felt like he was all alone, and he ran for cover. And Elijah was frustrated that most, if not all, of Israel, it seemed, had given into the influence of wicked Jezebel. However, the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So Paul's reflecting on what happened with Elijah and Jezebel when he felt all alone. Here's what he says, Romans 11, verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. This is Elijah talking. And I alone am left. I alone am left. And they seek my life. Do you remember this? In the next verse. But what is God's reply to him? Quote, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's reminding us when you feel all alone, When Elijah felt all alone, he's fighting the 450 prophets all alone. And God reminded him, if you go back and look in 1 Kings, he reminded him, no, there's 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. There is a remnant. And God has his remnant in this dead church of Sardis. And there are a few sincere among the hypocrites, a few humble among the proud, a few separated among the worldly, a few stalks of wheat in the midst of the tares. And Christ described the faithful remnant as those who have not soiled their garments. The word soiled here means to stain, to defile, to smear, to pollute. And garments symbolize character in this setting. So these believers would be showing their true colors through their character. And they had not soiled or defiled their character. And by the grace of God, they had held on to the truth and to godly living. So verse 4 tells us that they had an unshaken, your next blank, they had an unshaken walk. You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Christ says they will walk with him wearing white, representing the purity of Christ. In ancient times, such garments were worn for celebrations and festivals. And because these faithful Christians refused to have their garments smeared with the sin of the world, Christ would replace their earthly garments with heavenly ones. And they were considered worthy because Christ's righteousness had been imputed to their account. By the way, when people in today's culture walk around Christians and say, well, I'm so worthy, you better make sure you understand what we're talking about because you're depraved apart from Christ. It's Christ who makes you worthy. And when his righteousness is imputed to your account, when you use the word worthy, you're not talking about yourself apart from Christ. You're talking about Christ in you. That's what makes you worthy. Don't get that confused. You're worthy because of Christ's blood saved your soul, and he's now taken up residence inside your heart and inside your life, and you are a creation, a new creation in him. And so here he says that they're worthy. They have now put on, as Romans 13, 14 says, but put on or clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So let me ask you this morning, in which group do you find yourself? If you were there in the, in the church of Sardis, are you in the larger group that was spiritually dead or a part of the committed core? Are you a pillar in the church or a problem in the church? Are you a blessing or a burden on your leaders? Are you a contributor to what God is doing or do you have a critical spirit? Well, may God help us all seek to unite in Christ and not to divide in the devil. May we seek to build up one another and not tear down God's church. May we seek to follow Christ and his leadership that he has established in this place and not to make our own furrow with our own 
plow. The final heading of verses 5 and 6 here, the summation, it's kind of wrapping up what we've learned. Jesus reminds them that they are the faithful overcomers. Verse 5, those who are in Christ, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. When he says the one who conquers, again, a reference to those who are overcomers. In all of the letters to each church, Christ reminds each true believer that in Christ we are overcomers. We are conquerors. If you are a true Christian, you will struggle, but you will overcome because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And then we move on to that forever promise. In verse 5 again, he kind of fans out, if you will, that, that forever promise using three different concepts we haven't seen yet. Number one, your next blank, is white garments. We've been talking about this, but if you look again at verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. We've already established the fact that garments symbolize character in Scripture, and not only do they represent character, but they can also represent position or status. And in the ancient world, white garments were the appropriate dress to wear to a wedding. White robes were also worn by those celebrating victory in battle. All Christians have had their soiled garments removed, and they have been replaced by the garments of Christ. They have been replaced by the garments of praise, and all Christians have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all Christians are able to celebrate the victory in the battle over sin and over death and over the devil, and we will be fully cleansed and made spotless by the blood of Christ like laundered dirty garments, every vestige of sin will be taken off. And like new clean garments, a perfect righteousness will be put on. Revelation 7 verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And so we see a beautiful picture of that forever promise as us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We also see in this forever promise, along with the white garments, we see eternal life. Number two, eternal life there in verse five, I will blot, excuse me, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And so we understand here that we have eternal life. Jesus will never blot your name out. He will not erase your name from the book of life. He will confess your name before the Father and before his angels. Surprisingly, some people, when they look at this verse, assume that this verse actually teaches that you can lose your salvation. It actually teaches the exact opposite. He's saying if you're in Christ and you're an overcomer, your name will never be blotted out. No true Christian's name will ever be blotted out of the book of life. He never threatens to remove someone's genuine salvation. He never threatens that. He's threatening those who are non-believers, they will be judged. And if we are not walking in obedience, then we probably are not saved. But Christ does promise here to never erase a true Christian's name from the role of those who were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life by the lamb who has been slain, Revelation 13, 8. So we're talking here, what he's talking about is really eternal security. Once saved, always saved. I don't prefer that nomenclature. I prefer the perseverance of the saints. He's saying John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Have you heard Christ's voice? Are you following him today? Have you discarded your old garments through repentance and faith and put on the garments of Christ? If so, then your character has been marked by white garments. Prepare to enter into the eternal glory of the Lord. And then we see in verse 5, there's a strong, your next blank, confession a strong confession. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is a heavenly 
confession here that Christ is confessing your name before the Father and before his angels. And as our advocate with the Father, Jesus promises that he will acknowledge every name written in the book of life. And at the final judgment, Christ will confess all true believers before God in heaven. And in that great courtroom scene, our divine attorney will vouch for his own and he will never lose a case. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those sins in the whole world. Jesus is our advocate. He is our attorney. He is our atoning sacrifice. Have you confessed Christ today? Have you turned from your sin and looked to your advocate in Christ? Not your good works, not your church affiliation, not your good deeds. You need a divine advocate, and that is Jesus Christ, and he will defend you on judgment day, and he will either say he's innocent, she's mine, or you'll be guilty as charged. Will he confess your name before the Father? Verse 6 and final here is about the final counsel. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, he repeats this to each of the churches. He's saying, if you hear what I'm saying, you better live it out. If you hear what I'm saying, you, you need to take heart to what's being said so that you don't become like a spiritually dead zombie walking around in this place today. Jesus is saying, wake up. If you're playing church, wake up. Listen to the Spirit of God who's speaking to his church today. And so let me ask you as we wrap it up, how long have you been in the cold water? Look to Christ and he will rescue you this hour. What you may lack, Christ offers to give a new vitality, a restored passion for God. But you must do your part. And what I mean by that is the challenge he gives here is wake up, strengthen what remains, remember the gospel, keep the faith, repent of your apathy. The spirit is saying to you this morning, don't stay dead. Wake up and crawl out of the grave of apathy and complacency. A man once came to Gypsy Smith, the celebrated English evangelist of an earlier time, and he asked him how to have revival. Mr. Smith asked the man, do you have a place where you can pray? Yes, was the reply. I'll tell you what you must do, the evangelist said. You go to that place and you take a piece of chalk and you kneel down and with the chalk you draw a complete circle around you. Then pray for God to send revival on everyone inside of the circle. Stay until he answers, and you will have revival. Well, perhaps that's what you need to do this morning. You need to get alone with God. You need to ask him to send revival into your heart. Don't get up until he has. Stay there until he answers. And may your soul be awakened this day. And may we be full of life and full of passion and full of the spirit of the living God. If you're here this morning and you want to talk to us about that after we sing this last song, there'll be a few people up here that are ready to talk to you and serve you in any way that we can. You may be here this morning and you need to repent. You might come and say, Pastor, I'm one of the dead members of this church, member in name only, but my heart is lost. I need to repent and come to Christ. You can come forward this morning and we would love to talk with you about what it means to be a true, genuine believer. You might be here this morning and you might just say, hey, Adam, I'm not on fire. I'm nowhere close to being on fire. I'm so distracted. I'm so depressed. I'm so discouraged. I, I've just not been in the word. I've not been where I need to be. Would you pray with me that God would light a fire in my heart? If that's you today, please come talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to your small group leader. We all need 
that kind of encouragement. And if you want to talk and pray about it this morning, we have opportunity for you to do that right after we sing this last song. Why don't you bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for these words that we're listening to that you wrote through the Apostle John to the church of Sardis, that our church, Placerita, might benefit this morning, knowing that many of us in this church are truly born again. Yet many of us have wavered in our walk, and we want to be fresh and anew with you every moment of every day. There's others who are here this morning who were at D-Now over the weekend. They're in our church regularly attending, maybe even members who have never truly been born again. God, I pray that you would open up each and every heart today and that you would breathe life into us. And we know that we're only saved by your sovereign grace. And we want to respond to that today. If somebody would be here who needs to repent and to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would give that individual the courage to come forward and to talk to somebody this morning. We don't want to be a dead church. We want to be a church that's alive because our Savior Jesus Christ is alive and he's calling us out and he's calling us home and he's filling us with his power and with his glory, God. And I pray that we would just reflect your power, your glory throughout our lives this day, throughout this week, God. We give our lives to you. Help us to be faithful witnesses, overcomers, all because of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.